Well, continue on, good sir. You are now. What? How long does it take you to make the decision that you said, I'm in? Uh, okay, falling back to uh, you know the requests uh, of my wife for transfer, <laughs> I said, listen, I'm, I've been retired for a little more than a year now. Are you getting tired of me? I would love to be able to do this project. And you know, my wife has always been my biggest supporter. And she said, of course, this is something you have to do. So I, um, you know, after I, again, did some background search, you know, I, I asked them, I go, so you want a cold case? Um, are there any witnesses to interview? Um, no, they're all dead. Are there documents relating to this? Um, uh, is there anything I'm going to be able to find? Well, there's never been a, any real evidence found, physical evidence found. Okay. Um, and what about prior investigations? Well, there were two prior official investigations, one in 1948 and one in 1963. And that struck me odd. Man, 63 from 1945, the war was over. That's a long time. Um, and we'll get to that later on, on what actually prompted that. But found out that they never really had any conclusions. But whenever I first reviewed the documents from those, two prior investigations, I realized that law enforcement and what they were dealing with back then, quite different than today. Uh, the 1948 investigation was only probably 12 pages long. Uh, there were witnesses, actual witnesses to the raid that were never interviewed. Um, there, there may be missing documents out of the file. It, it wasn't like a typical cold case that people always see on television where the new investigator comes in and he pulls a box off of a shelf and there in very neat fashion is all these manila folders. <laughs> yeah, and, I'm laughing, right. Yeah, you pull that box down, you're going to be lucky if there's not like an old dead rat in there and an old coffee cup with... Well, and there was no box. These documents were scattered throughout archives. There was a, a, a great lack of cohesion to the 1948 investigation. The 63 investigation, done a little bit more professionally, um, also was— who conducted, uh, the six, who conducted the 48 and the 63 investigation? Which agency? Well, there was a group that was formed after the war to look into the collaboration crimes. And although it, it, it changed names partway through, um, it was a group of uh, people that were formed as investigators. But I have to tell you the, the, the previous story. After the war, they conducted what they called the purge. And it's just like the movie. Every policeman in the Netherlands and almost every prosecutor was fired and or prosecuted for their collaboration during the war. The Dutch government formed these groups and they, it was an estimated over 450,000 post-war investigations into collaboration. If you go into the sub-basement of the Dutch National Archives in The Hague, you open this door and there is an entire giant room filled with these files, these collaboration files. I could send you pictures of before it ended up there and I mean people were literally standing on two-story ladders trying to pull files off of bookshelves uh, for all of these collaboration investigations. 
it was it was incredible. So that was that was a group of somewhat vetted, but for the most part, very non-experienced investigators and prosecutors that were um, tasked to try to determine um, were there collaboration crimes by the different people who were fingered. Now, a lot of these were kind of ridiculous. If you saw your neighbor uh, providing water in, in uh, maybe a snack to some Nazi soldiers that were posted outside your house, uh, you know, neighbors were turning them in as collaborators. Um, it, it was, listen, during that time period, of in being in an occupied country, none of us um, can sit here and say that we would have uh, resisted or that we wouldn't have collaborated. I mean, well, I think there's question, a, you got to make a nuance, but you got to make a nuance between collaboration and surviving, right? I can survive if I don't give them water and I don't give them food. I'm going to get treated bad. My wife, you know, family's going to get treated bad, right? So there's a difference between that, between what I would call passive collaboration and active collaboration. And active means you're actually actively supplying information to the detriment of other people, turning in people. I wouldn't call the other, I wouldn't call the passive part collaboration. I just call it survival. Uh, but the, to your point, everybody is pointing fingers. We see the famous scenes in World War II, you know, when the 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 American, the, the, the allies are coming into France and you see the women in all these places she's a collaborator. So she gets her hair cut, you know, um, ostracized, right. The Nazi symbol carved in their forehead, things like that. Yeah. I mean, just, uh, you know, incredible how, uh, once the, the war ended, the number of people who were, uh, singled out and, and, and in many cases, well-deserved. I mean, there, there were some people that completely jumped ship and we're, we're with the Nazis and, uh, and, you know, we're just trying to actually enrich themselves, uh, through the, the efforts of, uh, selling to the war. Uh, but, um, so th that first investigation, you have to look at it and put it into context to say why it wasn't done properly. And it was done in 1948. Nobody in 1948 knew who Anne Frank was. Anne Frank was just, you know, one of Hundreds of thousands. Uh, uh, yeah, hundreds of thousands. You know, uh, there was estimated 150,000 Jews in the Netherlands at that time. Um, and, and she was just one of the victims, you know, over 102 or 104,000 Dutch Jews out of the 150,000. And when I say Dutch Jews, not all of them had Dutch nationality. A lot of the German Jews and from other countries fled to the Netherlands thinking that they would remain uh, neutral like they were in World War I. Uh, that wasn't in the cards. But um, What elevated then Anne Frank to the top of the collective consciousness then? Uh, well, I think um, after the diary came out and was published, and it was published, it, it, it was not widely accepted. It was not widely popular when it first came out. Um, it was, uh, I, I have one of the first edition, second printings of it, and it was, uh, it wasn't even called the Diary of Anne Frank. It was called The House Behind, translated from Dutch. Um, and it was a, uh, uh, a very interesting story. It was a diary, an account by a teenager of what she went through during this time period of occupation and being in hiding. 
It was only after the, in the early 1950s, once a play was developed about it, and it was translated into English and other language. Listen, once it was in English, it spread like wildfire throughout the world. And there was a play on it. And then in 1959, there was an Academy Award-winning movie, and it just kept gaining in popularity, and the message resonated with so many people. And, and, uh, and to the point that, you know, people say, uh, second to the Bible, it's probably the most well-read uh, book in the world. And in fact, uh, like the, when HarperCollins published Rosemary Sullivan's book, uh, keeping that in mind, they published it in uh, over 20 different languages, more than that in countries. It's distributed worldwide just because Anne Frank is of such interest to um, such a wide population base, along with those that were interested in true crime and the war and, right. and everything else. So how do you get from there to here? I mean, how well, do you get from starting there to say, okay, it looks like you're getting to the point. What finally tips the scale to say, okay, we've got enough here. I'm going to, I'm, I'm hopping in. Well, once I, I, I heard um, what the plan was, what they were intending to do, um, I did not want to be part of uh, a, a, a media project. I, I didn't want, if, if you watch any of the and it, Murph, it's no knock on narcos, but uh, if you watch any of the television programs and the documentaries are out there where they're trying to find Hitler or they're trying to find Nazi gold or anything like that, yeah, they never really find anything. It's like, you know, Oak Island. Right. They're going to dig on that thing until <laughs> it sinks into the ocean. Yeah. They, they never really do that. I didn't, I wasn't interested in being just part of a media project. It had to be a real investigation. And once I, I got uh, assurances from them of my independence, then I, and I saw that it wasn't done exactly the way I would have done it back in the two previous investigations, I felt that even though everybody was pretty much dead, there, there was room for improvement. Well, and here's a shock to everybody. Pablo's dead. Uh, Pablo was dead when the movie was filmed. There was no discuss, you know, investigating Pablo's. Pablo's still alive. Murph, I pretty much think you can probably vouch for the fact Pablo's dead. Can, can you confirm that for the first time in history? First-hand experience, yes, he's gone. He's gone. <laughs> He's gone. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Narcos is more about telling a story right rather than doing an investigation. So that that's why I think stuff like you're talking about there is different other than like say Oak Island, some of these other places. They'll keep digging until, you know, they the the island sinks simply because there's nothing left to support its weight anymore, you know? No, the truth is the truth is they'll keep digging until the ratings go down and then they'll stop. And then they'll there stop. you go. Yeah. yeah. So uh one once I you know, was uh, assured of of our independence that, uh, you know, they described they would be a fly in the wall while we're doing our investigation. And, um, and, and of course, I said, well, you know, who's going to pay for all this? Who's going to pay for the office space, for the travel, all of that stuff? And they said, well, you know, we are hoping to sell the book rights to, uh, uh, you know, a major publisher. Uh, we're hoping to sell the documentary rights and utilizing those funds, we can then do the things that we're, you're talking about. In the meantime, um, the, the one journalist that was involved in this, he had sold his house, had some money left over. He invested money. There were a couple other private investors that loved the idea. 
thought that it was a great tribute to the uh, victims of the Holocaust and those who survived. They invested some money. A lot of people thought, yeah, you know what? This is a worthy effort. So we went ahead and started it. Now, up until that all happened, my trips to the U.S. archives to uh, research some of this material and my trips to the Netherlands, I paid for. It was all on my dime. And that makes you very popular with your wife, doesn't it? I, <laughs> you must have been there, Murph. Yeah, uh, honey, I'll what's know, this brother. about? Yeah, well, are you telling me I have to get a part-time job? Why? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, um, and I mean, the, the more that I dug into the U.S. archives, uh, the, the more, you know, I became optimistic because this is what happened. Um, you know, learning a little bit about how the raid happened and learning about some of the Nazi policies that were going on during that time period to try to find Jews who were in hiding. Um, I told you, and we discussed earlier, the Nazis kept such good records so that they knew, okay, there are 150,000 Jews in the Netherlands because there had been surveys and censuses done on the people of the Netherlands. And one of the questions is, what religion are you? Or what nationality are you? What is your background? And the Jews were, of course, encouraged to put a J on there so that they knew who they were. So they knew there were over 150,000 Jews. The next step was they compared how many Jews they took prisoner and shipped out of the Netherlands up until um, 1942 when the Nazis and the SD that ran the Netherlands declared that it was Jew-free. They were missing about 25,000 Jews. Where are they? If you know your geography of that part of Europe, you know, well, okay, to the east is Germany. I don't think the Jews fled there. Occupied Belgium is to the south. I don't think they went there. And to the west is the ocean across, you know, the water to Great Britain. I don't think they made it across. They're certainly not going to swim that. Um, so they assumed they were in hiding. Now, what is the best way to try to route these people out, try to find them? Um, keeping in mind that the SD had already told um, Himmler in Berlin, hey, we're Jew-free here. What is the significance of having these SD divisions in Europe? Well, the SD, the Sicherheitsdienst, sort of like the secret police, uh, a lot of people call them the Gestapo, but it's a little bit different. Um, they were the, the uh, Nazi entity that controlled Denmark, unlike in France, where it was the Wehrmacht, the German army. In Denmark, uh, it was the Admiralty, the German Navy. Um, and these people were the worst of the worst. You know, many of them were SS officers. And within the uh, hierarchy of the, uh, the Nazi machine uh, in the SD, they had different divisions and they were, you know, some were uh, dedicated to rooting out resistance. Others were uh, dedicated to intelligence. But there was one group, Roman numeral 4B4, and their sole purpose, it was called the Jewish Affairs Group, but in reality, uh, what they were commonly called is the Jew Hunting Squad. And it was their job to go out and find the 
in the Netherlands, the nearly 25,000 Jews that were thought to be in hiding. So when they're out there doing this, so now, so, and I'm assuming now Anne Frank, her family, the other folks, the Van Dams, they're all part of this 25,000 that have not been accounted for. Correct. Yeah. They would be eight of the 25,000 that did not either voluntarily report for deportation or did or were not caught and rounded up in the various roundups that they had. Based on the records the Germans had, did they know the names or did they just know we have we have 10 people we know about, eight are gone, there's got to be two missing? I mean, did they get down to that point where their records allowed them to know the names of who they were looking for? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Because they had a general census of the Netherlands to start with, including the names of most of the Jews. Now, if it was somebody that recently came in from Germany or Belgium or France and didn't register, they might not have their names. But certainly the Franks had been established. Otto had a business there for years. So um, they, they knew who they were. Yeah. Man, uh, just again, all these historical records. Well, that's going to factor into a lot of your research. So where does it go from there? So now, now that you're over there, now you're looking at this stuff. You know, at some point, and I know I don't know where to tie this. I was going to say I don't know where to tie this in at. You're start. You're going to get some technology assistance. So what's the what's the next step of the process for you here now? Well, our our fear whenever we first started, you know, at the very beginning was, are there enough records? As I mentioned earlier, there wasn't like a defined cold case file on a shelf in a police department records division. We had to go digging. And and at first we feared that how oh, we're not going to have enough records to really, uh, or accounts to, to determine, um, you know, is there anything that was missed? Is there anything new? Not only that, but as I also mentioned before, we didn't have anybody direct witnesses to interview. So we, we had to think outside the box. We had to say, okay. I mean, literally, you had to think outside the little box of information you had, right? <laughs> yeah, because we, we didn't have one. But our, our fear was that we weren't going to have enough information. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we brainstormed and we said, well, listen, you know, there are interviews of all of the witnesses for the most part, whether it was done, um, you know, by the written press, whether it was done later in years by the audio or television, there are interviews and there are speeches that were given by some of the witnesses. So let's dig into those words of the people that if they were here, we would have interviewed. Let's compile every word that they ever spoke publicly about the raid. It has to contain information or answers to questions that if they were sitting in front of me, I would be able to ask them. And the only reason we're able to do it in, you know, start of 2016, but uh, most of this was done in 2018, 2019, is because we have the internet. We were able to scour the internet and scour all of the press archives for any bit of information. Then also, even though we didn't have the direct witnesses, we had friends of the direct witnesses that were still alive, three of which actually live here in America. I'm going to see them in about two weeks at a, uh, a document uh, dedication ceremony at the Anne Frank Center in South Carolina. And so I can interview them. Now, again, you know, it's second person information. It's not a direct witness, but that's OK. This is a historical exercise. 
And, you know, I always also would look at it like, well, what would these witnesses, what interest would they have not to be totally candid with us? So that started us, instead of confining our search parameters to a fine box from a police department records room, it was really cast, the net was cast over the entire internet. What can we find? I, I got one quick question for you. You just mentioned the Anne Frank Center in South Carolina. How did that come to be? Isn't that something? That's the number one question so many just, people ask. <laughs> I was going to say, of all places, yeah. South Carolina. Well, I will tell you, if you ever get the opportunity, it is located on the University of South Carolina, uh, which is in the heart of the deep, deep South, you know, right uh, uh, a professor there by the name of Doyle Stevick, former Pennsylvania native uh, from my Western Pennsylvania area, um, established uh, the Anne Frank Center with help from the Anne Frank House and Foundation in the Netherlands. Uh, there used to be a traveling exhibit and educational resource group that from the Anne Frank House that would go around the world educating people mm -hmm. on the story of Anne Frank, but also tying it into the Holocaust. Doyle Stevick said, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could lo locate that here and also open the conversation of, you know, what happened in the Deep South during the Civil War, during the slavery period? You know, are there any connections? Um, let's let's bring it here to South Carolina. The university agreed and, and don donated, dedicated an entire house on that historic old campus that is just for the Anne Frank Center. It's fantastic. Wow. Wow. Now, you were talking about from Western Pennsylvania and stuff, too. I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, Dutch influence in Western Pennsylvania, right? The things that come from that area? Well, it, you know, it was... Um, it was actually before I started the project that I finally realized that the Pennsylvania Dutch, as they are called, are actually actually Pennsylvania Deutsch. Um, so uh, the Pennsylvania Dutch are really of, of Germanic descent rather than of Dutch descent, even though you'll see windmills. Yeah. Hey, quick question, too, because you talked about... Um you know, back then people would worry would worry about speaking about things because of being viewed as a collaborator or worried about retribution. But even with the three surviving folks that you talked to, or the three folks that you talked to, the friends, was there any issue about them worrying about um, retribution or somebody still out there that was loyal to the Fuhrer and, you know, might visit something bad upon them? Was there any issue around that with any of the people that you talked to? I didn't, I didn't gather any of that. Um, they, um, though they're very open, all three of these people were, uh, two of them, uh, were very close to Otto Frank. One gentleman by the name of Ryan Cooper was almost an adopted son of Otto Frank. And the other one, uh, Carol Wilson Granat, her married name, she was like an adopted daughter to Otto Frank, a pen pal with him for more than 20 years, visited with him. Uh, back to Ryan Cooper, he even stayed with Otto Frank, lived with him for a period of time. Um, so these people, they knew Otto Frank. They knew also his right-hand employee, Meep Geeks. You were talking about Ryan being so close to Otto. How, how old is Ryan now? Uh, Ryan's in his uh, probably late 70s, early 80s. So, and... But now, is Ryan an American version, Americanized version of his name? 
he is he is American. Uh, uh, he all three of these people that I'm speaking about were not originally from Europe or the Netherlands. They were all from the United States. Uh, were um, profoundly influenced once the diary went was uh, produced in English. Uh, it was published 19, I think, 52 in English. All three of these people, Father John Nyman, who was a Catholic priest, um, uh, Kara Wilson Granat, who was uh, somebody that read the diary, was so influenced by it. She was an aspiring actress, actually tried out for the uh, part uh, of Anne Frank in the 1959 Academy Award winning film. She didn't get it, but uh, but she was, yeah, she was, she, yeah, and the same with Ryan. They were so influenced by the diary. Uh, teenagers who read it and thought, wow, you know, this is profound. I'm going to write to Otto Frank. And surprisingly, he wrote back. And that started a long relationship. I, okay, I see what you mean now. That that because uh, I I was I made an assumption at the beginning. I was trying to think. Well, how did he intersect with Otto Frank? He surely wasn't living over there during that time. Correct. Obviously, yeah, yeah. This was the kind of person that Otto Frank was. He he. If people would write to him, he felt compelled to write back. And with many of the people that he corresponded with, he developed a very close relationship. You know, some people uh, said, especially like our uh, behavioral scientists that we had working with us said, you know, the the trauma of losing both of your daughters and your wife, it was almost like this was a way for him to communicate uh, through his daughters and, and their message to these uh, teenagers that he was writing back to. Wow. I mean, just think about reaching out, but think about, obviously, from your standpoint, the importance from a historical records perspective of, you know, getting some of this communication as well. And of course, and, you know, the questions that we asked of these people, did did you ever have a sit down with Otto or Meep Geese um, and ask them what what caused the raid? Because there there was always this underlying thought that Otto and Meep Geese, the two primaries that continued the story on about Anne Frank and the diary, um, that they knew something, that they had a secret. Many people even asked them, and they were very um, brief with people about that. They would say, well, you know, I, I, I don't want to discuss it. It was almost like they had a secret dealing with what caused the raid. And that was something that we were told when we uh, visited the Anne Frank house. That was something we were told when we visited all three of these people who knew them well. So did you, I mean, being a trained criminal investigator, uh, even though you were with the FBI, um, I'm not going to hold that against <laughs> don't, you. Please don't hold that against you. <laughs> no, but I mean, but obviously that's an area you start focusing, well, I don't want to talk about that. That's like, makes you even more interested. But did you get the feeling is that that was just, that they didn't have information, but that was so sensitive because that led to the death of people? Or did you feel like they were holding back information about that? Well, I mean, naturally, you feel like, okay, if there is a secret and they're holding back, what is it? Could it have been the, the, the first option that you described? Absolutely, it could have. But, you know, this is one of those things that you put on your whiteboards, which we had our, our investigative office filled with whiteboards. That's a question that would have had to be answered. Was there a secret? Wasn't there a secret? Turns out in our mind, 
after you know we the evidence that we found there was a secret well let let's talk about leading to that so now now you're starting to put the team together when do you find uh when do you get your footing i mean when do you get your when do you hit your stride in this investigation is like we're firing on all cylinders. We're getting everything. I mean, you're still going to have some roadblocks, but it's like, no, we're engaged. We got the team assembled. And at the height of this, tell us about the size, scope, you know, structure of your team. Well, j- just about the time that we were getting a little disappointed on the, the scope of the information that we were going to have to be looking at and, and the distances that we're talking about, because it's not like there's one central repository for all Holocaust-related information, Nazi information. It was going to be all over Europe, and we found in the United States. Um, it's a people- scavenger hunt is really what it, I mean, you were going all over the place, right? Looking for breadcrumbs. What do we have here? Yeah, it was historical archaeology is what it was. And what we ended up doing is I made many trips to the U.S. archives because I had a, a friend at the Holocaust Museum in Washington tell me, you know, they have a collection of captured Nazi records. And it turns out that as the war was progressing, uh, in favor of the Allies, there was a group of men. I've dubbed them the document men, almost like the monument men. Monument you, men, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that you saw the movie. Well, the document men, instead of looking for antiquities, they were scouring uh, areas and buildings uh, that were captured for any documents, anything that would provide one actionable intelligence right now. You know, like, yeah, here's here's where there's artillery emplacements. Here's where their logistics lines are. But also for intelligence and details about the prison camps and the Holocaust. All of that at the, was gathered up at the end of the war that was all packed into these wooden crates. Some of it was excised for the Nuremberg trials, but most of it was packed in these wooden crates. I have pictures of it where it's being loaded into these containers onto ships to the United States. This sounds like Indiana Jones at the end of the first movie is where you get the ark and it goes into a box and hidden in a freaking government warehouse somewhere. And you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what happened. It ended up in various government uh, buildings in the sub-basement of the Pentagon. And I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of captured documents. Finally, somebody said in the late 1950s, wait a minute, West Germany, is uh, they're an ally of ours. What are we doing holding on to all this stuff? Ship it back. Luckily for all of us and for history, there were enough um, historians, there were enough academics, uh, enough war crimes investigators that said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Honestly, we we haven't even begun to look in these boxes. Many of these were never opened yet. And they embarked on what was the largest microfiche project ever attempted in history. And you know what? You guys are going to know where it was based out of. It was called the Alexandria Project. It was based out of the torpedo factory down in Old Town. Old Town, Alexandria. I know exactly. I mean, have you been down to the torpedo factory, Murph? I have. Uh, in fact, Mike McManaman's business is located there, their yes. offices. No yeah. kidding. I'll tell you what. I would have loved to have been that microfish salesman. He would have made his <laughs> quota for that year. Yeah. <laughs> well, the project, it it was on a scale that they couldn't even handle it completely there. They had to farm some of it out to different universities. Well, all of that was was uh, put on microfish and is now housed in the United States archives. 
It is in the Archives 2 building, though. It's not in downtown D.C. It's in the Archives 2 building out near the University of Maryland. And there is, I was driving around one day going through the countryside with my wife and, you know, we, we, we take long drives sometimes. There is a, I got to remember where it was. I don't know if it's down past, uh, like near Culpeper, Orange County, but I, there was a archives facility out there in Virginia somewhere. And it's like, what the hell is this thing doing out here? It looked almost looked like a prison, but it was a big building, uh, with big gate around it. And it was an archives facility. Yeah. Yeah, and the government, you know, for various uh, agencies have them scattered about. But the the one, and the point of this is the one incredible find, not only, you know, was this unexpected that we were going to find all these records here in the U.S., rather than, you know, naturally thinking, well, we got to go to Europe for this. But we, in in one of the files that I was digging around in for, and this went on for a couple years, I found a, uh, a a big folder that said miscellaneous receipts, and it was from Amsterdam, and they were dealing with the SD. As I started to look at it, I'm looking at receipts made payable to names that I started to recognize as SD agents, Dutch detectives that worked for the SD for in 4B4. And with a little bit of help from Google Translate, I quickly realized what I was looking at here were cup guild receipts, the head bounty receipts, the reward receipts that for turning were paid. in Jews. For, wow. for turn, well, we thought for turning in Jews. That's what everybody thought cup gelds were. But when you looked at who got paid, it wasn't just individual citizens. It was these band of mostly Dutch detectives that chose to work for like a task force situation for before. And these guys were making more money per month off of the reward payments of capturing people than they were from their own salaries. Wow. Now, that was the good news. The bad news is, immediately, I started to look for the August 4th, 1944 date. I'm looking for, you know, who got paid for capturing the, uh, the Franks and, and their friends. The bad news was the... Uh, receipts that we found, they ended in the fall of 1943. And there weren't any after that. Not only that, but the same collection on microfilm that I was looking at had a lot of burned and what appeared to be water-damaged documents. Go back into history. This is where it all ties together. Go back into history. On November, I think it was 26th of 1944, um, there was a British uh, RAF bombing mission to destroy the SD headquarters in Amsterdam. And so what we're assuming is that many of these documents were either contained in that building or the building across the street that was called the Central Style. Um, and the RAF bombing destroyed many of the documents that would have helped us determine, without a doubt, which three Dutch detectives uh, Performed the raid. Did you? But even though those might have been destroyed, did you see the same group of people getting paid all the time in terms of the Dutch detectives? In other words, is there a high likelihood that those getting paid in '43 were probably going to be the ones getting paid in '44? Absolutely. Yeah. And we know from history that there are um, two detectives that were named 
uh, two Dutch detectives who were named, a guy by the name of Gringhaus and a, a guy by the name of Grotendorst, that they were named as Dutch detectives who participated in the raid. Um, they were uh, actually confronted by Otto Frank after he returned from the camps. But there was a third Dutch detective who was missing. And also for up until 1963, the SD man who led the raid, the actual Nazi who led the raid, along with these Dutch detectives, his name was missing from the records. Um, and a lot of people said, well, you know, what's the interest? Why do you want to find out the Dutch detectives' names who participated in the raid? What does that matter? Well, you know, who, who else would know what caused the raid? Who turned them in but the detectives who led it? That's a silly question to ask you. Okay, but this is the difference between a, a historian and an investigator. Right, right. There is a big difference, and people have a rough time wrapping their head around that. A historian just wants to tell the story. A detective or an investigator in this case wanted to find out the answer to a singular question. What caused the raid? Well, and, and so, his, historians want to know about the what, what happened. You want to know why it happened. Exactly. And why it happened gets back into the briefings or whatever they would have got. Where did their information come from that disclosed the location of uh, Anne, Otto Frank, you know, the Von Doms, everybody else? Right. You know, yes. One question is, what uh, was there... Um, so when the, when the these snitches basically the Dutch cops would capture a Jewish person, what was the average payment for that betrayal? Well, is what it is. Well, at the at the beginning of the Kopgeld program, it started out at seven point five guilders, which in today's money could be anywhere from forty seven to seventy dollars a person. So per person, that's what they would receive. Okay. Wow. Again, back in those days and during wartime, you, you can see it wouldn't take long for them to make a lot more money than they were making. Now, you said this was in addition to their salary. Were they moonlighting, freelancing, or was this like authorized by the uh, like the Vichy French, you know, had their government like the Dutch? The, was it the Vichy Dutch or how did they refer to the um, government that was operational while the Nazis were there? Well, it was it was a, a, a Dutch government, but it was Nazi backed. They picked the the leader to go in and yeah so the dutch detectives were actually uh, yeah it was fully sanctioned they were detailed to 4 before but as you're going to hear me say many times you know so many of the actions of the people that we're describing i can't judge but i can judge the actions of these dutch detectives that were in 4 before you know we were all law enforcement we know, you know, what betrayal to society happened here. And I know that they had a choice. They didn't have to work for the SD unit. They could have transferred to a different police unit. So let me ask you a question. As you're doing this and as this is becoming more apparent and you're working with the Dutch police and some of these folks, how did they respond to it knowing that some of their predecessors, some of their brothers, you know, that were supposed to carry the same badge, the same oath, we're doing this kind of betrayal against their own uh, countrymen and countrywomen. Uh, the the same as me discussed, um, realizing that you know they betrayed uh, the trust of the people, um, and they had a choice. You know, there was only one case in one of the files that we found of the SD Dutch detectives, where the guy asked for a transfer and they did not give it to him. Uh, but he wasn't punished in any way for requesting the transfer. They just said, no, you're too good. You know, we don't want to lose you. And they wouldn't transfer. 
Wow. I mean, that just goes against your entire, I don't know that they even took an oath of office back then, but wow, from what we know, you know, nowadays, modern days, holy cow. Well, and a lot of people would ask the question, well, did they really know at this time that the people that they were capturing were going to end up in a death camp? And the answer to that you know, based on history is, yeah, they, they did. They had a good idea. Well, what other reason would you be capturing Jews, which were, as Nazi Germany is determined to be the enemies, did you think that they were going to a, a party with tea and crumpets? You know, no, the, all, all of these folks, whether it was a death camp or a firing squad, nothing good was coming out of the fact that they were getting captured. Well, I think a lot of them fell back on, well, I thought they were going to labor camps. I thought they were going to work in, in war factories. You know, that was some of the excuses yeah, that were used. I mean, still, it, yeah, I mean, to your point, yeah, it's still, you shake your, your folks can't see this, you're shaking your head too, like we are. It's like, still doesn't matter. You're, you're giving up your own, your countrymen to the enemy. And a labor, I'm sure a labor camp wasn't a, a you know, sweet vacation out next to the shore. Oh, no. Mo- most of the people that worked in the labor camp, they were worked to death. They weren't died. fed properly yeah. and they died. And they, yeah, the, the Nazis viewed them as a commodity. We need 10 commodities. You know, we need 10 widgets. Go get 10 people. And when they die, we just replace them. And, and there was a saying, as long as you were of use to the Nazis, that they could use you for something, no matter what it would be, um, you could stay around. They would, they would keep you fed just enough to keep you alive. But once you were of no longer use to them, then, yeah, you, you can, they don't care if you die or they don't care if you go off to the ovens. Well, and I tell you, I, there's a, I'm trying to think of the name of the, uh, I think it was a Netflix uh, movie, but it was about the final solution. It was about the meeting where they all came together. And it was amazing. Uh, they did a good job in this movie, but just from the dialogue, but just how cavalier they were. And they turned it into economic issues. Well, we tried the gas fans and that's too expensive. They, they, they looked at it just from economies of scale. How can we kill more people economically? And then like you, you know, as you'll find out from history, what do they do? They extracted gold out of teeth. They did other sorts of stuff to, de, de, uh, you know, um, um, to, uh, de- deflect the cost of things. Right. You know, so, uh, to mitigate the cost of stuff. And it's like, okay, we're going to recover some of these costs. It, it was almost like they were running. Uh, it's a, it, it was to them. It was a business. I, it was kind of war, but it was really run like a business. That was the Vanasse conference. Yeah. Yeah. Where they sat down and they were actually dealing with trying to justify the, uh, the extermination of the Jewish people. Yeah. You know, were, were they, were they really people or weren't they, you know, um, it, it was it was incredible. But anyway, it was a fantastic find. And you know what? We were at a little bit of a low at that point. And when we found all these documents, uh, we had hoped that maybe, just maybe, that when the United States in the early 60s, when we were done with the microfilming and we sent all of these containers of documents back to Germany, maybe Germany kept them. Maybe some of them are, were actually there and the people who were microfilming and missed the ones uh, for the Anne Frank family and her friends. Yeah, it turns out now whenever I, we were trying to work with the German archives, this file with all these receipts, granted, it was just listed as miscellaneous payment receipts. Nobody really knew what it was. It was probably destroyed. You know, that it's... Um... You, you've said over and over, and I've read a lot of articles and while we're doing our research on this, that there's no definitive 
smoking gun in this case. It's it's based on all circumstantial evidence, and and you guys don't present it as anything else other than what you found. It's a theory. But man, if you'd have found that receipt from that day, just think about how many leads that would have opened up for you. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, there there were these aha moments. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people uh, that that are out there, the uh, sort of armchair detectives that read the diary and know a little bit about it said, you know what? I really think one of the helpers, one of the people that worked for Otto Frank were probably who turned them in. They got tired of hiding them or they got scared or something happened or they were coerced because they were the only ones that really knew that they were in hiding in this annex in the back of the building. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example of the difference between a historian and an investigator. My first visit to the Anne Frank house, I go into this room where the famous bookcase that concealed the hidden door into the, the back room area where they lived was there. I'm walking around, I'm looking at the floor, and I notice on the floor, there is witness marks. And Murph, dealing with Colombian drugs, you'll remember some of the hidden compartments we used to look for and find, and, and we would look for witness marks. Those telltale signs that something opens, there might be a wear mark or a scratch. There in the floor was a wear mark from the wheel that supported this giant heavy bookcase that swung open. The minute I looked at that, I looked at the historian who had been there for years, and I said, if there was any question that when the detectives and the one SD man walked into this room, there was any question that was there was something behind that bookcase, this would have answered it. Here's the clue. And we went back to period photos back years and years and years ago, you know, in the late 50s or mid 50s, and that mark was there. It wasn't that the Dutch detectives necessarily knew exactly where in that, they were in that building. If they walked in and saw that witness mark, they knew that that bookcase opened. So, and the historian said, you know what, I've worked here, I don't know what he said, 20-some years. I saw that mark, but I never thought of it in those terms. Wow. Well, it's because we're said, a bunch of suspicious bastards is what we are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And God, we trust all others. We run NCIC as the old. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, yeah, yeah I was going to ask you to start setting the stage, too, because at this point, you've got a volume of information. From this point and going forward, at what point does Microsoft and technology start playing a factor for you? Because at some point... You've got to be getting overwhelmed. I mean, there's only so much the mind can hold and try to assess and make connections before you got to start going, there's got to be an easier way. Yeah, we quickly realized that, you know, in a modern investigation, I mean, there has to be some degree of uh, report filing and automation. When we saw the amount of documents that we were going to have to sift through, whether it be transport records to the camps whether it be records from the camps itself, whether it be intelligence lists uh, that we found in the U.S. archives on Nazi informants in the Netherlands. Uh, You know, yeah, the mind can only do so much. And uh, somebody presented the idea that they recently watched a program on television called the JFK Papers. And that was one in which Microsoft utilized its AI program to totally scan 
everything in the JFK assassination archive, which allowed investigators to then try to look into correlations, details that may have been missed. And although, you know, it, it wasn't anything more than just an exercise in gathering these papers and seeing what uh, would result from it, it gave us the idea that something like this, a program like this that would help us link dates, addresses, common events, this is what we need. We reached out to Microsoft and they loved the idea of trying to help us. Wow. That's, you know, and I had, I had the same question, Morgan, because reading about the AI, I, want, I was really curious you know, is this something that you guys wrote code for, but there was a program already existing? Is what I just heard. There, there is a, uh, Microsoft has a basic architecture platform. Uh, uh, it's their uh, Azure Blue program. And what we then did is with a, a contractor of theirs, Plain Concepts, uh, a computer company, AI company out of Spain that works with Microsoft, um, we sat down with them and, uh, well, it was I can remember that first meeting. It was funny because they looked at us and said, okay, well, what do you want the program to do for you? And I thought a minute and I said, well, what can the program do for yeah, you? Exactly. And we were at that standoff, <laughs> you know. We had to come up with a common language. Of, of what we would want to do, the type of documents we had. And do you know, in the end, this program, when we would dump documents into it, um, it would, not only would it uh, actually scan the documents, optical character scan them, make the word searchable, but if it was in a different language, it would translate it for us. Wow. And translate it pretty good. You know, you would always want to have a native speaker go back over it. But now, even more than that, I'm sorry, man. My when I hear stuff like this, I go back to my one of my favorite phrases, man. Technology is bitching. I oh. mean, what... <laughs> well, and hey, looking at the three of us, we're all about the same age. I'm probably a little older, maybe, but the uh, we Dude, were I'm, all... I'm, f I'm only 41. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, hard... the, the gray hair betrays you a little. It's hard to, hard to believe he got to looking like that in just 41 years. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a hard 41 years. <laughs> hey, man, gray hair is hereditary. You get it from kids and uh, wives. So. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we, we were all, you know, at the beginning of the information superhighway, you know, but uh, I'm still stuck on the on-ramp because it went by me so fast that, you know, these young whiz kids are telling me, well, not only can we do this with all your documents, but do you have audio interviews? Do you have uh, uh, video interviews? I go, yeah, yeah, this is the idea. I can't interview these people in person, but it's all out there. I just need to gather it in and make it searchable. So the program, you could also play a video for it or introduce an audio track. It would strip all of the words and make it searchable. If it was in a different language, it would translate it. Unbelievable. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I'll never forget the first time, you know, you, you sort of fire it up and you put a couple terms in, you know, where you're trying to search. And we must have had, you know, for the name Auto Frank, we must have had 2 million hits. You know, how, how are you possibly going to look through all of that? So that was the tweaking that went on for months and months on making it, uh, only put out the most pertinent information. Well, and, and as folks are, part of artificial intelligence is also called machine learning. You have to train the algorithm. You have to train the AI to understand what's important, what is a car, what is a cat, you know, things like that. So part of this process, a lot of people think it's just magic. You dump it in there and it spits stuff out on the end. Well, 
it, you dump it in there. It's it's like grinding it from coarse down to fine. You got to figure out what you need to where, like to your point, by the time you output something, it's relevant, it's targeted, and it's not just. I mean, Otto Frank, like you said, if you went to Bing, we don't say Google because Microsoft is involved now. If you say if you go to Bing, and and search for it, but I mean, like if you put in Otto Frank, you would get, as you said, millions of hits. The question is, what's relevant to what we're looking at? Because otherwise. You're just back on a in in uh, an ever expanding you know lead hunt. It's like one lead generates five, which generates ten. You've got to yes. you've got to narrow it down. It's exponential. But the the once it was sort of fine tuned, uh, we decided to put in an, the address of all of the helpers, the people that worked for Auto Frank, thinking that perhaps they you know weren't the ones that betrayed the annex. Maybe, just maybe, there was loose lips sink ships. They said something. A neighbor heard it. Lo and behold, one of the addresses that we put in was uh, one of his workers, uh, Mr. Kleiman. And that address came up with an immediate hit on the door next to his. And and if you've been to Amsterdam, you know, the homes are so close. Many of them are sort of like row homes. Um, nice homes, nice uh, apartments, but in the address right next to him. I mean, he could open his door and reach out and touch the next door. A man that worked at the SD office and had a history of betrayal lived. And nobody, and I mean nobody up until this point, knew that. And without this artificial intelligence program saying, oh, this SD man that lived right next to one of the helpers might be of interest to you. You know, it turned out that it, it ended up being a uh, a lead that didn't generate anything for us, um, but it was one of those examples that these connections are out there, the names are out there. You just need to be able to filter it down to a point where you can actually come up with these connections that that may produce results. And in fact, I, you know, after the the publication of the book and the sixty minutes piece, I got a call from the behavioral science unit person out at, uh, in our San Francisco office who said, you know, this sounds like something we could use in the Zodiac killer case. We have all of these records. We have all of these different departments. It would love to be able to bring it into one cohesive, uh, program. So, you know, hopefully they'll be able to work it out with Microsoft to be able to do that. But so yeah, uh, Microsoft, uh, they also were gracious enough to provide us with uh, computers and screens and just about anything we needed. They were a great corporate citizen whenever it came to this. Well, I, I saw that just last year you spoke to the International Association of Chiefs of Police Conference to uh, educate them on how this uh, equipment, the advanced uh, tech AI. Artificial AI. intelligence. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I haven't <laughs> that, had enough coffee. That this thing over yet. there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> talk about a dinosaur. You're talking to one here, Vince. But yeah, the fact yeah. that it just puts it all in one place and makes it uh, sortable, you know, and you can get so specific and find things, it's amazing that the technology just shocks you what goes on out there. Right. Now, keeping in mind, as good as the technology is, um, you know, I'll fall back to old-fashioned policing and investigating uh, knowledge. You have to know what's important to tell the people that are programming it, and then you have to know what to do with it. You know, I had a team of, of brilliant um, young uh, historians. Many of them were uh, uh, graduates. Uh, in ma They had their master's in history. M many of them specifically targeted towards the war. 
But a lot of times they would come to me and said, I found this information. I'm not really sure if it's important or not. And see, that's where the investigative team that was there would look at it and go, yeah, you're darn right that's important. You know, what I'm I'm really loving about this, too, is we've had several people come on and talk about cold cases from different parts of the world, uh, especially out of Canada, here in the U.S., and and over in the U.K. I was just thinking, yeah, Julie Mackey, in that case, all of their stuff they had to go through. Oh, yeah, this would would be a goal, and she's retired now, but, you know, for her, the people that follow along after her, this would be a real investigative tool that, you know, cold case investigators could take great advantage of. Yes. And the the other beautiful thing about this is that you can expand the parameters, you know, where you could possibly go into different police department databases. Let's take the Zodiac Killer. And there may be unrelated assaults, attempts at rape, and that that could be related that just they, they never put two and two together. With a program like this, you can sweep with a or capture with a broad net all of that information let the program sort it out you know you, you, uh, people hours person hours oh man you know exactly i mean david allen does this it, it, there's a great book out there in a methodology he's called getting things done and it's about thinking differently about how you do important stuff but you just brought up a good thing and, and he has a saying the mind is for having ideas not holding them you have the idea. Now you use technology to implement the idea you had because your mind is not a filing cabinet. You, you were never designed to hold all this stuff in your head. There's no possible way that you can, unless you're one of these people with an eidetic memory or uh, never forget anything, you know, like wives. Wives have <laughs> wives have a different kind of, you remember back 42 years ago when you did this? Uh, no, honey, I, I don't remember <laughs> yeah, what I had for breakfast remember. yesterday. <laughs> but but I, that's what I like about it. It frees the investigator to quit doing administrative stuff or manually doing stuff. And to your point, start generating, where's the next lead I ought to be following? Where's the next path I need to be looking at? Who's the next person I ought to be interviewing? And you can't do that if you're doing all this administrivia kind of stuff. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You you had to, uh, I used to call it cutting through the chatter. You know, you had to eliminate all that chatter and just focus on what was important. But, um, you know, we were, we were, doing things that people had, hadn't done before uh, in looking at trying to solve this with Anne Frank, you know, by gathering all these interviews up and then also employing another modern police uh, investigative technique, and that's uh, behavioral science. You know, we involved uh, Roger DePue, who was, I mentioned before, was one of the founders of the uh, Bureau's Behavioral Science Unit, um, and uh, Bram Vandermeer, one of Europe's premier investigative psychologist. And we had them look at the behavior, the statements of the witnesses of Otto Frank and say, you know, what does any of this mean? Can you please look at it and tell us what relevance? Did they have a secret? Didn't they have a secret? Were they holding information back? Um, and, and that gave us insight uh, into the information that they were providing. And, and, to you know, sum it all up, after all of that was looked at, it was clear to the behavioral scientists that, yes, both Meep Geese and Otto Frank were, they, they knew something and, and little lies, I don't want to call them lies because we're talking about Otto Frank and we're talking about Meep Geese, who was recognized as righteous among nations. 
but but it, but omission and commission, if they omit facts and there's a glaring hole, it's not that they're lying, but that's why the the thing is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You can't you can lie by omission, but if you leave certain facts out, that leaves a gap, and that's kind of what you're getting at. He's not lying, but he's just not telling you the entire truth. He's not telling you the entire truth. And and an example of that, Meep Geese, who again was his uh, like administrative secretary in the business, his longtime friend, his confidant up until the day that he passed away. Everybody thought that if if anything, she knew uh, what happened. And uh, and uh, Father John Nyman that I mentioned before, who was a friend of hers. In fact, she and her husband traveled to Father John Nyman's ordination in Los Angeles when he became a a Catholic priest, he had a conversation with her and and she confided him and said, Otto did know who did this. And, you know, the question always was, well, if he knew, why didn't he do something about it? And that is the big question. Did she know? We believe that perhaps in the late 40s, early 50s, no. But at some point, he probably did tell her. He confided everything in her. And, and um, there was a 19, I think it was 1994 Wallenberg lecture in which she did a speech. Uh, and it was, I believe, in, at the University of Michigan. And during that speech, uh, she said the same thing she always says. I'm listening to it on headphones. I'm almost half asleep. And then whenever they uh, ended the presentation and they opened it to questions, a young man in the audience asked her, you know, what, what caused the betrayal? And she said, well, by 1960, the betrayer was dead. And I almost jumped out of my chair. I'm thinking, where did this come from? How, how, how well, did it, I never? She knew. At, you know, at that point, you yeah. knew she knew. Yeah. She knew. And he was masculine. By, he was dead. And then there were other little tidbits, little, little breadcrumbs that Otto Frank said. That, listen, if I turn over the betrayer, if I bring him forward, his children will no longer have a father like I no longer have children. Will it bring my children back and my wife back? No. So why do this? And that falls back. I mean, all of these clues meant something to us. They meant nothing to the historians, but it meant something to an investigator. Well, and that's the statement analysis. I'm not saying I know, but if I did know, it would probably be X. I mean, they're telling you they know without admitting they know. Almost like when they asked O.J. Simpson, well, if you would have done this, how would you have done this? You know, and he (laughs) described it perfectly. In detail. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, this, this was big breakthroughs for us when we involved the behavioral science people, because they were picking these statements apart and the words that were chosen and the words that used. And in their mind, yeah, there was a secret. And yeah, they probably knew who it was. But then how does that help us? I mean, we know that it's probably a man. We know that he had children. And Autumn Frank also made one other statement to a journalist. This was in the late 1940s. He said, I'm afraid that we were betrayed by Jews. So now when you narrow it all down, we're looking for a man. We're looking for somebody who had children and somebody who is Jewish. Now, that whole whole topic of Jews betraying Jews really hit us hard when we were over there. And we found out that many of it 
was forced. Yeah, that's what I was going to let, let me ask. Let me stop you there and ask you about that, because um, you don't want that to happen. But sometimes people do it out of self-preservation. It's like if I have to give somebody up, I'm going to give you up, not my own family up. I mean, this was uh, this is the proverbial rock in a hard place thing. No, there is no good outcome. There is no good decision. There is no right decision. And a lot of it, too, at that time, they knew that if they gave somebody up, that their family would be safe. You almost look at it and you go, would I fault them for doing that? You know, this was the the exact answer. We said uh, and there was a, a an exhibit going on at the Resistance Museum in, in Amsterdam at the time. And it was like, what would you do? Yeah. how uh, We sitting here today could never judge anybody that was Jewish and was forced to either give up somebody else or to collaborate. And you know what the Nazis did? They, they, you know, the SD, they were brilliant in the fact that they actually would catch Jews when they would be in hiding. And they would say, okay, I'll give you a choice. You can go out that door and get on a train and go to the east. Everybody knew what that meant. Or you can go out that door and you can cooperate with us. You can help us because you're Jewish and you know people and you would be able to circulate through the community and perhaps find people that we wouldn't. We, we, will, we will have you work for us. And they called them V-men or V-fraus. And those were their paid informants. Now, paid meaning they would give them a place to live. They would probably give them a small stipend for some food. Um, some of them attended some lavish parties, too, with, with the Nazis. But um, you cannot look at it and say, yeah, this is what I would do. I, and myself, I'll tell you, to preserve my family, my children, I would probably have cooperated. I'm not sure. I hope that I would have never been one of the Dutch detectives that cooperated. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah no money. way. Yeah. You know, it's very similar. That's what Escobar did down in, you know, Colombia with the Medellin cartels. He went into the judges and, you know, here's some money you can cooperate with me. Or look here, here's a picture of your wife coming out of your house, your children coming out of their school, your mom and dad coming out of where they live. Do you want them to live? Take the money. That's all you got to do. If you don't, you're all going to die. Well, and Steve, too, the other thing, too, I obviously wasn't down there like you were, but I mean, but even working with the government, the, you know, the DNA and folks like that, they were telling all the time stories about somebody come in and says, hey, I'm going to give you $20,000 because we want this information. Or I'll just kill your family. Yeah. You know, what? What do you do with what that? I mean, Plato de Plomo. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, what I would do is I would rip off my shirt, show my S underneath for Superman, <laughs> and then promptly grab them and pull a uh, uh, Kevin Jackson crap my pants, Steve. <laughs> I mean, Kevin Black. I said Kevin Jackson again. Uh, Kevin's one of the guys I work with, but uh, we'll tell you a funny story later. But yeah, but I mean, but that is the ultimate thing, and that is one of those ultimate philosophical and you know moral questions: is yeah. what. Given the same circumstances, what would you do? Yeah. Well, and we had a, 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 a rabbi that was from that area um, in Amsterdam. Uh, and we asked him uh, at that time, he was like on an, an advisory board that was formed. What happens if when we're all done with this, it's concluded that it was somebody who was Jewish that actually gave them up? What do we do at that point? He thought about it a while and he said, well, let me tell you, the most important thing is the truth. And we thought about it too and said, if we come up with somebody 
which is actually what happened. Do we bring this information out or do we bury it? And there were people that recommended to us when we actually came up with our conclusion, our theory, you should bury this. And I said, no, listen, you know, we cannot bury this. If we bury this, imagine it will get out what we concluded. People would look at it and say, see, exactly. You buried this because, uh, you know, somebody who was Jewish was involved or the neo-Nazis would have a field day with it because we tried to cover it up. You know, because they would said, have gone, had it been a Nazi collaborator, had it been somebody else, you would have trumpeted that fact. But the fact that you're hiding it proves, right, that it was Jewish. Yes. yes. And um, and, you know, the there were so many different uh, parts of our investigation because, you know, in a cold case, we had to come in blind. We had to say, OK, listen, none of the current theories uh, will we accept totally. We have to review every current theory that's out there and any new ones that are phoned in. And, you know, it, probably after we whittled down through ones that made sense and had some investigative capabilities, we ended up with like 30 different theories or scenarios, we called them, of what could have caused this raid to happen. It wasn't necessarily betrayal either. You know, we had to think, was it accidental? Was there something that caused the SD to show up there on that day that caused this to happen? Um, and you never know. It could be just a random thing, like somebody saw somebody go in the door with more groceries than really what was needed or, you know, took an action. It's like, you just don't know. I mean, it's one of those, it could be just one of those random things, two objects collide in the universe and just one in a billion. But it happens, right? Like people winning the $2 billion in that lottery. What are the odds of that? Well, apparently pretty good because somebody won eventually, right? Right. Well, there were different clues that were, that were guiding us, though. For instance, the name I mentioned earlier, the name of the SD man who led the raid was never really out there in the public uh, until Simon Wiesenthal. Everybody knows the name Simon Wiesenthal, the famous Nazi hunter. Um, he uh, also a uh, uh, survivor of many of the, the death camps. Um, he and his wife both. It was a remarkable story in and of itself. But he set out in about 1957 to try to identify who was the SD man that led the raid. Because there were people in his native Austria, in the, uh, outside of Vienna, uh, that were picketing a, the Anne Frank play distributing these leaflets saying, this story is bullshit. You know, it's not real. And Frank's not real. The diary's not real. And the Holocaust probably isn't even uh, real. There's, there's your original fake news claim and, you know, Holocaust denial. You know, that's still, still around in some form or fashion. It is. So what he did is he set out on a mission. If I can prove that Anne Frank is real, if I can find the man who, who actually led the raid, then I can prove that the Holocaust is real. So he set out um, and, and started his own investigation. I mean, he was a Nazi hunter. He knew what to do. And um, uh, I, I have to put a caveat in there with no help from Otto Frank. And in fact, Otto Frank didn't want to help him. Well, that was a question we asked. You know, why wouldn't he want to find the 
person responsible for the death of his wife, his children, and friends. You know, why? Um, you know, and we, we turned to our behavioral scientists and said, can you answer that question? Well, you know, it, it is possible that he just wanted to put the whole thing behind him. I don't know about you two, but if it would have been my children, I would have hunted till my last breath. Dude, I would have had somebody dig my ass up even five years later and continue <laughs> the investigation. It's like, there will be no rest for you here or in the next world. Well, and, and uh, lo and behold, uh, fast forwarding, um, Simon Wiesenthal was in Amsterdam. He was making inquiries. He actually obtained a list of the SD men and the Dutch detectives that worked for 4B4. And through clues that were out there, just like we found, where it was mentioned that the man who led the raid, Miep Gies, who, again, was Otto's administrative secretary, she was Austrian by birth. She recognized that the, the SD man that led the raid was Austrian from his accent. The, something that Simon Wiesenthal keyed on. And so he looked down through the list of the people that were in 4B4, and lo and behold, there was one very Austrian name on there, a guy by the name of Silberbauer, who he ended up actually finding working as a policeman in Vienna and probably passed him on the street numerous times as they were living there. Going back a little bit, though, we were talking about omissions and commissions when when Simon was probing around in Vienna or, or, or in Amsterdam for these answers, the Department of Criminal Investigation sent a couple people, a couple detectives out to talk to Amit Geese and said, uh, hey, tell us the story again. Remember, this is 1963. The raid happened in 1944. Can you tell us again about that raid? And, and do, did you know the person who led the raid? You know, do you know his name or anything like it? She didn't know anything. Didn't know it. <laughs> when we dug up the original investigation reports from 1948, which evidently the 63 detectives didn't find in the archives because they were spread about, she named Silberbauer as the detective who led the raid. Why did she lie to the detectives when they came to her after Simon Th v Wiesenthal was nosing around? Why did she not give them the name Silverbond. Right. Wow. And and a lot of this, you know, played into our theories. Okay, in our questions, why didn't Otto Frank want this man found? Why was Meep Geese lying about the name not, or omitting the name, not not telling the detectives the truth? Why? Why didn't they want Silverbauer to be talked to? Well, I mean the answer to that is there's only one person left alive at this time that would know what caused the raid or who caused the raid, and that would be Carl Silberbauer. And why didn't Otto want that information to come out? Because it might identify maybe somebody Jewish or somebody else, and he was trying to protect, maybe not protect a friend because it would be no longer friend, but protect his own, protect his religion. Well, I go to... The, you know, uh, all the detectives from all the investigations, the official ones, the 1948 and the 1963, they're all dead. But, you know, being and conducting due diligence, I go to their family members and I say, listen, did your dad leave a diary 
did he talk about this? Does he have any records? And I happened to go to one son of the lead detective in 1963, and he said, no, my dad didn't keep a diary. In fact, he didn't really talk about his work much. And we kind of let it at that. I said, but did, did he happen to keep any documents? Well, you know, we were cleaning his place out in 2011 after he passed away in like 2001. And yeah, I found a stack of documents relating to the Anne Frank investigation. <laughs> Why didn't you lead with that? You know, <laughs> that's, that's like called burying the lead in a newspaper story. It's like, I, well, so I happened to be back uh, uh, in Florida for Christmas. This was uh, Christmas of 2018. But I'm, I'm speaking with him and I said, is there any way that you could He's an older gentleman, a retired history teacher in, a, in a high school. I said, can you take pictures of it or send me anything? He goes, well, I, I did scan the documents. I, I, I can send you some of the scans. So he sends me some of the scans and some of the documents I had seen before. They were from the official case file. But one thing that I saw was the case file cover. And I go, that's not in the official case file. He had the original case file cover. If you remember how those were, you know, the DEA ones, the Manila or the FBI ones, he had the, the, the official one. Um, and uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just walk to get a little bit more power for the uh, laptop here. But not only that is I'm digging down through the scans that he sent. Uh, remarkably, I see a, uh, a letter. And it was a typewritten letter. It was anonymous. And in this letter, it actually declared who the betrayer was. I almost fell out of my chair. Almost crapped your knickers, as the Scottish would say. Uh, yeah, yeah. My McKendry uh, family members would have said that. Well, I, I had to quickly have it translated because it was in German. Uh, which was somewhat unusual. It was in in German, and uh, but uh, parts of it were in Dutch. So it was so strange. And whenever I dug into the detective's one file, I found that the detective, and this was actually a public record that people had seen, mentioned that Otto Frank said that shortly after liberation, and his return, which would have been, uh, he returned June of 1945 from the death camp. He said, I received an anonymous note. This anonymous note named the betrayer. And um, I, I, you know, I almost couldn't believe it. But the detective said, I made some inquiries about this name. And through assimilated intelligence, whatever that meant at the time, I found out that uh, this man that was named, who happened to be a Jewish member, uh, well, of course he would be a Jewish member. He was from the Jewish council, and he was a Jewish man that was a notary by profession. And being a notary in Europe is different than in the U.S. There, it's like a property attorney. And that started a, a completely different scenario, a, uh, uh, an idea of what maybe what caused the raid? Why had we never seen this before? Why had this never been investigated? Why had it, it been overlooked? This is public record. This record was available probably, his final report was turned in in 1964. Anytime after that, anybody 
could have pulled this report and looked at it. Why did everybody just pass it by? People that I talked to that were a couple of historians said, well, yeah, I, I took the detective's word that he checked into it, and this guy was a good man. And I'm going, well, you know, in a cold case, we don't do that. We have to go back and ask every question. We have to look at um, what, were things verified? Who, who, who verified that he was a good man? And, and whenever I saw it, I said, well, wait a minute. He was a, he was a member of the Jewish council. I know from history, all these men from the Jewish council, they were sent away to the death camps eventually. And so you look at what's the exception to the rule. And when it's like, to put it in today's parlance, when you do a raid and the first guy gets out before anybody else, one of the original, <laughs> one of the suspicions is you flipped, you're working with the cops. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it, lo and behold, the, uh, the man who was named never went to a camp. I searched all the camp records for him and his family. I searched the transport records. So the question was, this man that was named as the betrayer, where was he? And how did he stay out of the camps? And did he also die before 1960 and have children? So now, now the, the leads are all starting to gel around. You're starting to get a lot more confidence in the name. We're starting to get a lot more confidence in the name. Um, but again, in a cold case, we're not putting any more weight on this one than any of the other scenarios. You, you have to whittle them all down. You have to run all the weeds to the ground. And at times, uh, I have to tell you that this scenario, uh, until we found out that he didn't go to one of the camps, it wasn't leading the scenarios because, you know, we just assumed, well, he went to the camps. Maybe he survived the camps, which he did, We or survived the time period of the camps, survived the war, let's say. And we found out, yeah, he definitely survived the war, but was he in a camp? And when we found out he was not and that he was missing or in hiding, uh, then, you know, the, the antennas go up and say, okay, we need to look into this further. And it, it opened a web like you would never believe. Turns out that this man was very good friends with a German banker who, a, I'm going to use the air quotes now, acquired a giant Jewish art collection, acquired, paid a fair price. <coughs> <laughs> and this, the majority of this art collection was bought by none other than the Reichsmarschall Hermann Goering. And Guess who sat across the desk and officiated this very transaction? The notary. The notary. See, Mur Murph and I are a little slow in the morning. We're getting our coffee, but we kind of figured this one. <laughs> That's a pretty glaring clue there. Yeah. And, and, and where this all becomes pertinent is, you know, for somebody to be able, uh, as a Jewish council member, to be able to escape being transported to a camp, um, he he had to be very crafty, and he was. He did everything that he could to preserve himself and his primarily his family, and they all survived. Uh, I can't blame him for it a bit, uh, and, and many people took offense to us coming up with this theory and naming him, but, you know, they're not understanding that we're saying that, yeah, it wasn't that we are blaming him. Anybody would have done that. We're blaming the Nazis. That's who caused all this. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, folks got to remember, 
none of this would have happened had Germany not started World War II. Yeah. Right. This, yes. Absolutely. Well, and the, the other important thing about the note is it doesn't say that he turned over the names of the Franks or the people there. What it said was that he was responsible for turning over numerous lists of addresses where Jews were thought to be hiding. Anonymous. It was names, not names, it was right. addresses. And then, and just like you said before, so if, that, they, if they, here's an address we haven't checked, guys, let's go in here and look. And you go up to that landing and you see that telltale mark on the floor. Yep. Well, and then, you know, we're digging into uh, the various men. We looked at every Dutch detective that worked for 4 before, and lo and behold, one of them, in his testimony after the war, uh, stated that uh, when uh, the Nazi unit started to look for the various Jewish council members, uh, this particular notary, he was smart enough that he paid money to obtain an exemption that claimed that he was no longer Jewish, that there was a mistake, uh, that one of his uh, grandparents was not Jewish, therefore he wasn't Jewish. It was called the Kalmeyer exception. It, it, was, it was a thing that many people tried to do. Uh, some were successful. It cost a lot of money. It was all, for the most part, it was all just BS. It was just lies and documents that were produced. And uh, the head of this Kalmeyer office, which was a Nazi office, um, he, he was, I don't want to say he was sympathetic to the Jewish cause, but I don't think he liked what was going on, so he accepted it. Well, a Dutch detective in his testimony after the war said, I, you know, whenever they actually found out that this Dutch notary was truly Jewish, I mean, he lived Jewish his whole life. He was part of the Jewish council. Um, he went to warn him that they were going to be looking for him. Something that, yeah, you know, there has to be some kind of a connection there, you know, for him to go out and warn him. And he said, he wasn't at home at the time that I went out, but I told the people who were there. And whenever I came back about a week later, he was gone. So I'm assuming he took my advice and he left. Then one of his VFRAs, one of his informants that he operated, testified and said, yeah, in the summer of 1944, I saw him running around with lists of addresses where Jews were thought to be in hiding. Sound familiar from the note? And that a lot of the addresses must have been old addresses because whenever they went there, the Jews were gone. They either moved on or they were captured. All of these little pieces of the puzzle starting to add up. You know, it's it's almost like maybe he wasn't trying to give everybody up. And so salted among the real addresses were a bunch of fake addresses, but you had to give just enough to the Germans so that they wouldn't find you, to your point, not useful anymore. So every now and then, even a small win was enough to keep him in their good graces, it, it would seem. Exactly. And this German businessman that was the one that acquired the uh, art collection and was a friend of this notary, he, I mean, he just wasn't any businessman. He was friends with Goering's sister and Goering. He entertained all of the leaders of the SD at his villas, 
parties, lavish parties. In fact, the one leader of the SD's wife lived at one of his villas. So there was such an interconnection. Now, this interconnection started to leave when Goering started to lose power uh, at the beginning of 1944. Uh, you know, Hitler, if you, if you look back in the history of it, Hitler started to lose confidence in him. The Luftwaffe, the Goering was over. Um, it, was, it was almost non-existent. Well, hell, by 1944, Goering was so fat, he couldn't fit into anything, including a plane. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he, 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 he certainly didn't uh, look like uh, the World War I ace that he was. But uh, he, he started to lose favor, and this German businessman thought, you know what, um, I, I've done enough here in this country that if the war doesn't go my way, I better get out of here. So he takes what's left of the paintings, and he flees to Spain at that time, um, not under Nazi control, uh, the southern part of Spain. So he flees there, and lo and behold, the notary loses his protection. And so the notary, as far as we can tell, he disappears. Did he go into hiding? Most likely. And in fact, uh, there is a historian over there that's been, you know, very critical of us. But he says he was in hiding in 1944. So why would he ever have to turn in these lists? Which we countered and say, yeah, just because you're in hiding doesn't mean you're well, safe. Well, the question is, is he in hiding from the Germans or is he in hiding from people who thinks he's collaborating with the Germans or providing information? And yeah, Exactly. Exactly. And uh, yeah, n not only that, but uh, the, uh, the list could have been turned in before he went in hiding or if he was approached by any of these detectives after he went in hiding. One way to get out of being arrested is, listen, I'm going to hand you a list of addresses. This is worth money. At that time, it was worth more than 7.5 guilders. As, as fewer and fewer Jews, the easy ones were found, it, but as fewer and fewer were being captured of the 25,000, they started to raise the bounty. They started to go incrementally up to almost double it. And, and let me add one more caveat. It just wasn't Jews they were looking for. They were, I mentioned earlier, I think, Jehovah Witnesses, uh, um, Catholics, uh, resistance members, communists. We saw receipts in there for all of those people. Now, it would be different uh, groups in the SD, a different Roman numeral that were looking for some of the other ones because they, they were broken down. They were very specific. So Vince, you know, so let's look at this now from the standpoint, you've collected all of the stuff now. How do you bring all of your work now to a logical conclusion? Because at some point you've got to issue a report, you know, you have to bring it to a conclusion. When do you get to the point to where you feel like we've done all we can do? Uh, because I know that you were working with Rosemary Sullivan. We want to talk about the book too a little bit and some of the CBS things and the documentaries. But how do you make the decision like with any cold case or any case you say, we've gotten as much out of this as we're going to get. It's time to bring it to a close and, you know, finalize what we're doing. Well, uh, speaking from, uh, you know, in law enforcement terminology, we were looking at, uh, at the scenarios that were left as far as means, motive, and opportunity. Um, who of these suspects had the means, motive, and opportunity with means we were substituting knowledge, you know, that they had knowledge of where the people were in hiding. 
And, and it turned out that of all the scenarios, there were scenarios that we couldn't prove. We couldn't bring them to a level of confidence. The only one that survived the means, motive, and opportunity to a level of confidence was that of the Jewish notary. But we had one burning question. Where did he get the lists? That's what everybody said. Where would he have access to these lists of addresses? Where did he obtain them? Yeah, and who was keeping the list in the first place? Was it the council? I mean, was it a a secret intelligence organization within the council? I mean, who would want to know where everybody was at? Well, and that was the burning question. So we, we even after the uh, formal team uh, disbanded because the funding ran out in October of 2019, several of us continued the investigation um, and, and tried to find answers to those questions. And the answers were there. We found out that uh, there are three or four different sources where the list could have came from. Uh, there was a transit camp in the Netherlands called Vesterborg. That's where all the Jews first processed through before they went to the camps. Um, too bad Otto Frank and her family and their friends weren't found a few weeks after they were because the last transport uh, for the death camps left in September. They could have survived in the annex till after that. They, you know, We wouldn't be here probably talking about this today. Um, but we, we found out that there were a, uh, uh, a group of Jews who worked, uh, for the Jewish council and their job was to be the intermediary to travel between Westerbork and the Jewish council and then the overall government. And that the Jews in the transit camp would regularly give them mail to deliver to relatives that they had in hiding. Well, to deliver the mail to relatives in hiding, you had to have the address. So it could have been these men that were compiling the addresses. Maybe not for nefarious reasons. Maybe they were just compiling the addresses. Okay, this, they needed an index. We got to know where people are. We right? got to know where people are. We need fell to, into somebody's hands. Right, but we, they could have been passing it to resistance groups that were there. Perhaps the lists were captured from resistance groups. And then there was also the Jewish council acted as the go-between for any mail that was sent from the death camps. Believe it or not, some of the death camps allowed mail to get out. It was first screened and censored, but within that mail, they could have provided clues or information or even addresses. They probably thought the Jewish council safe. I'm going to send this to my relative who's in hiding, I know, down in the southern part of the country. And the list could have been compiled there. Once we started to find evidence that these lists were, or these addresses where Jews were in hiding, were being funneled through the Jewish council. I mean, I would love to be able to say, okay, on this date and time, this is where the Jewish notary picked this list up and, and, and took it. But we couldn't do that. But what I can say is, Working for the Jewish Council and being out, yeah. he had access to it. He had access to it, so he had knowledge, he had means, he had uh, uh, motive to save his family, and he had the opportunity because he wasn't in a camp; he was out running around. Wow! Um, by this time, like funding ran out, but you continued to work on it. When did this? When did when did your investigation? When did your effort officially come to a close? I, I want to say it was probably late. Uh, 2020, early 2021 is whenever we finally said, okay, the most likely of all the scenarios that we reviewed, 
the most likely cause of the raid is the one involving the Dutch notary. And that's when we concluded it. Yeah. And how did you go about issuing like, you know, like with a, a, a committee or whatever, how did you go about issuing your final report? Because by this time, this kind of book in this, by this time, you went from, ah, should I do this or not, you know, to now you even worked without compensation for a while. How many hours or how much effort had you put into it by this point? In other words, did you feel like you were back on the job again, working 50, 60 hours a week, or what was it like? Oh, oh, it was, I'm going to tell you, whenever I actually lived in Amsterdam from uh, October 2018 to October 2019, I would only come home for just like a quick home leave and then back. Uh, honestly, when I say it was 24 hours a day, it was. If, if I was sleeping, I was thinking about it. If I was awake, I was thinking about it. It was on the weekends. It was every waking moment. And up until then, I mean, what started out as an investigation became this obsession to learn more because there was, right when you think that there's nothing new to be found, you turn over a rock and you find something new and you just keep going and going and going. And even after I returned home in October of 2019, it still kept going. We were still reviewing what was in the Microsoft program. And, uh, and the, uh, about that time is when Rosemary Sullivan uh, actually started putting pen to paper. She was embedded with us for a month uh, in 2019. And then would have regular phone calls with us. Okay, what's new? She had access to our databases, access to the programs. So she could go in and read our reports that were being conducted, just like you know, a regular police report that would be done. Uh, we had actual reports. We had sort of incident reports. All of that information. Then she had to try to wrestle this this behemoth of a story, how do I put this into 350 plus pages? I have to tell the story of the Holocaust. I have to tell the story of Anne Frank. I have to tell the story of the SD and your investigation. And we also know what else hit in oh, yeah. 2020. Uh, hurricane COVID. Hey, COVID. by the way, just tell me, just tell me, please, you didn't call your investigative reports 302s. Uh, we did not. No, okay. no, that, 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 that confused so many people. I, I, I would have put those people over the edge. Over there. And for those listening in, we've talked about this before. There's the DEA six or there's the FBI 302. It's basically your summary, you know, your report summary, the, the narrative. Um, but I have a question about that too, because when you look at a lot of the stuff and I want to ask you, why are you not more prominently featured in the book? Your name's not on there anywhere. I know they entered you, interviewed you for CBS and some other stuff, but it's almost as though, and I'm not, this is not a knock against Rosemary. I'm just saying it's the way it kind of looks when you look at it first blush in the media. It looks as though she did the investigation and wrote the book. To be, to be fair, I mean, at the beginning, it was going to be, uh, I'm, I'm not an author. I've never authored a book. I can write a report like hell, but, but I'm, I'm not a, a book author. Uh, at the beginning, they thought it was going to be a co-authored situation, but, um, once again, uh, it wasn't something that I necessarily wanted. You know, I wasn't an author. I, I, I would be glad uh, and did accept, accept a small stipend for the months that I lived over there and my expenses while I lived over there. Believe me, it was less than minimum wage. You know, uh, people have accused us of getting like rich. producing a podcast. 
Yeah, you know how it goes. So, you know, nobody, uh, contrary to a few of the Dutch critics that claimed that, that everybody got rich off of this project, that's ridiculous. The money, the stipends, the tranches from the sale of the book rights went to pay for the investigation. I mean, you know what it would cost to rent an office, to have uh, uh, travel, because we had to travel to Germany, Austria, uh, uh, France, uh, within the United States, Canada, I mean, uh, Great Britain. It, it, it's, it's ridiculous that they claimed any of that. But um, what happened, if you actually, even though I am not prominently displayed as a co-author, if you read the book, it, my name is littered throughout the book, and it's uh, and and that of the team members are in there. I mean, she truly um, tries to capture the essence, the frustrations that we went through. So we we are prominently named. We're on also on the back of the book. I think my name is on there. But for me, it wasn't about getting my name out there. Listen, in the undercover group, our names were never mentioned. Never. And in fact, in, in the, the case that I cited before, the Sky Capital case, I actually found out that Ross Mandel was arrested by walking into a convenience store and seeing uh, uh, the New York Post there with his picture on the front and a couple FBI guys leading him away. I had to call my co-UC uh, uh, and say, listen, did you know Ross Mandel just got arrested? He said, no, I, I had no idea. So we're, we're always the last to find out. And you know what? That's okay. Hey, but, but everybody kind of plays their role. You do your part. But look, I got to tell you, though, because uh, I want to talk about one final thing before we close up here. It's you put all this together and you present it. And it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a good, it's an honor, too, to be able to present at the International Association of Chiefs of Police. You've got 15,000, 16,000 people coming in from around the world. You've got also people from industry that are displaying there. So I, I think, you know, the times I was, I've been probably 10 of those um, over the years, but you've maybe got 25,000 people, you know, going into these things. And so you had the chance to present um, with Microsoft uh, and, and you on this. How was this received? How did people? How did? Because to me, it would be a paradigm shifting kind of thing. You're listening to this and you're realizing, dude, you're supposed to be fucking retired. Here you are, <laughs> the furthest thing from retirement. You're back on the job again, like a new agent, putting in all your time and effort onto this. I mean, so first of all, that's a huge salute from us. But how did you? How did the presentation go? What were the key parts of that presentation that you got out to law enforcement? Well, I, you know, I really appreciated, uh, it was an honor to be invited by Microsoft to do that. And this was not a paid appearance. Um, I paid my expenses. Oh, so I was going to ask too, none of your team members <laughs> tried to expense any visits to the red light district in Amsterdam, did they? <laughs> no, we, that was off limits for the team. We, we didn't want any scandals <laughs> off limits completely. No, but, no, no cafes either. Yeah. But it was, it was an honor. Um, it, it was so very well received. We probably, you know how those sessions are broken down, uh, within there. There's uh, like a hundred of them going on at the time. So to get people to come to your session, it's almost a marketing effort too. It was was completely filled. It was standing room only at the back. And it Amazing. was one of the first uh, presentations of the morning. So, you know, people were filtering in from partying <laughs> no, the no, night look, before. Say, yeah, that's it. They're hungover. They're coming in going, where's my goddamn coffee? Get I don't coffee know what first. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. true. Well, um, it, it, it was an incredible honor. And, uh, you know, the, the afterwards I stayed and I answered plenty of questions, but we were getting ushered out because there was another presentation in, but we invited everybody to stop by the Microsoft booth. And I talked to police 
uh, chiefs and administrators from really all over the world, just bouncing ideas off of, you know, we have this case, we have that case. Do you think that the AI program could help us? And I'm standing there with the, you know, the Microsoft team members who would then chime in and say, yeah, you know, I, I think we can. Now, there were certain countries that were there that, um, uh, you know, because of technology transfer, they weren't able to offer them the uh, Microsoft program. And there's a couple countries. <laughs> you don't want them well, to we'll, have it. <laughs> yes, you don't want them to have it. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, some of the human rights issues in some of these countries, uh, yeah, preclude them from doing that stuff. But that's good to hear that there's ethics involved in that. So, right. but you did the presentation and uh, you did the 60 minutes thing. Um, what's next for you? So now that this is done, are you going to go try and figure out where Jimmy Hoffa is? I mean, what well, the hell? Well, not, not really, but let me, let me tell you. Well, one. That was not a denial. That wasn't a, like a clear no, not, not really. Not did, a you, hard no. did you rob the bank? Not really. Not really. I wouldn't really. call it robbing. Well, in, in the middle of our investigation, I, uh, found out that there was a, a neighbor, uh, a few streets away. It's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, he was four years old at the time, living with his family in Belgium. Nazis invaded. Dad had enough, uh, money to escape. They made it to Portugal with a lot happening in between. They boarded a boat to the United States, landed it at, at, uh, New York City and found out that, hey, uh, the quote is full you're going to have to leave, go back to Europe. Luckily, he had a relative, a brother that lived in the United States who got them qu quickly qualified for a program where they could go to Manila, to the Philippines, which was a U.S. protectorate. This is 1940 to 41. So they made it to the Philippines. They're sitting, trying to just acclimate themselves to this Beautiful tropical climate, so different than Belgium, but they're safe from the Nazis. Pearl Harbor happens. A few months later, the Japanese army invades. They're taken prisoner now, this time, by the Japanese army. Oh, my gosh. Well, he came to me and said, listen, uh, he told me the whole story, but he said, uh, at the end of the war, whenever the American 1st Cavalry then recaptured Manila, we were... Our family was intact. We were one of the few that nobody died. Um, we had malaria, we had dengue fever, and we were malnourished. We probably wouldn't have lasted a month or two more. He said, I can remember an American colonel in a Jeep driving past where we were billeted, and he saw us and said, he saw these, you know, five Europeans standing there, young boys. He said, what in the hell are you doing here? Then they told him, well, listen, you know, over here, you're going to find, you know, all these other Jewish families that were re relocated here under this program. Well, he ordered uh, people there, make sure they get enough food. I, he was also a medic. This colonel was also a doctor. He said, I want to make sure that I see them at the medical facility. He took a liking to this family. He cured them of dengue fever, malaria, got them uh, fed, really loved the boys, and uh, wrote to family members back in the U.S. and said, listen, they're alive, they survived, and uh, I'm going to do my best to get them to you. He ended up getting them uh, visas, and they ended up back in the U.S., and now they're three generations of a family. Well, he's, he's 86 years old now, and he said for the last 26 years, ever since he retired, he has been trying to find Colonel Hall 
John Hall, who was his liberator, and thank him. But, I mean, he the handwriting was probably on the wall. He figured he... He's passed. And so he went to the local congressman. The local congressman said, yeah, we can confirm that he passed and his wife passed. So are there any living relatives? And the congressman's office could not find any living relatives whatsoever. But he asked me, he said, listen, when you're done with the Anne Frank project, could you please just confirm this, look into it? Because my story will not be complete until I can thank them. And he goes around all over South Florida, in fact, many places in the United States, lecturing about his Holocaust experience to try to try to educate children and really anybody will sit down and listen to him. He's the Energizer Bunny. At 86, he has far more energy than I do, which which isn't saying much, but uh, I did some basic internet searches, found out that he had one son that had passed away, but I... I thought that I saw that he had a, a daughter and another son. Well, I contacted some of our old data partners that, you know, the Bureau used to work with and still works with. And I said, I need a small favor. Uh, you know, I don't have a PI license. I'm just a consultant. But this is the story. And they said, you know what? We love it. Give us the names. We'll do some searches. They ended up giving me a clue of an ex-wife of the brother who passed away. So I called her up out of the clear blue sky, cold call, told her who I was and what I was doing. She almost hung up on me. She thought it was some kind of a scam. And I explained to her and she says, well, I'll tell you what, he does have a living son. Colonel Hall has a living son. I'm not going to give you his number. I'm not going to give you his name, but I will contact him. If he's interested, he'll call you. About a week went by. I heard nothing. I was getting really worried. This was last spring, summer. And all of a sudden, I see this, this uh, number I didn't recognize. I don't know what told me to answer it, because a lot of times, if I don't recognize it, it's spam. And he gets on there, and he said, hi, I'm Rogers Hall. I'm the son of Colonel Hall, and I hear you're looking for me. And I told him the story about his dad and what his dad did. I think he was almost in tears. He goes, I've never, ever heard this story of my dad. He said, my dad didn't talk much about his war years. I knew he was in the Philippines. And I knew that since he was a doctor, he was one of the first of, I think, seven to go to, it was either Hiroshima or Nagasaki to inspect uh, the damage there. And uh, I, I said, you know, I would... I would love to introduce you. You would make this old man's life complete if we could just put you two together. So I went over, and I actually had my son film it, and I had uh, a lady that is from the local Jewish Federation that organizes a lot of Eric's speeches present, along with some of Eric's family members. And he thought he was just going to be answering questions about his uh, experience through the Holocaust. And I fast forward and I said, Eric, um, you know, you tell us about your experience in the Philippines. Let's start with that first. He told us and I said, now, what would you do if I told you that I found a living son of Colonel Hall and this poor old man bust into tears? I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. He couldn't believe it. He said, really, Vince, you're, you're not you're not because please, I, I couldn't take this being a joke. And we had Rogers Hall ready on a Zoom call, put them two together. It was 
remarkable. And then the Jewish Federation arranged an in-person meeting last August. I can send you guys some of the newspaper clippings from it. It was so heartfelt for both families, but especially Colonel Hall's family, to learn what one man's unselfish act, he didn't have to do any of this. That wasn't in his job description. But one, one unselfish act did that changed the legacy of an entire family, which is now three generations. And wow. it's stories like this that separate us from everybody else in the world, all these other countries where other people are conquerors, we're liberators. I don't care what people say. You can, you can send me hate tweets or whatever else. Still to this day, we're liberating force, not a conquering force. And that's the big difference. Well, there is a, a, a at the in-person meeting, Rogers Hall, who is a retired Vanderbilt uh, professor of higher mathematics, um, just a towering man. He, he, so was his father, was a towering man. He presented a framed picture of his dad in uniform from about that time period to Eric. Eric has all of his life pictures hanging on his wall in his home. And as he gets up every morning, he walks past Colonel Hall's picture now and thanks him. What a great way. To, I, I know. I got the chill bumps, too. What a great way to, to conclude this interview. I, um, wow. Amazing. Well, look. Okay, so you've done that, but you haven't found Jimmy Hoffa. So what have you done for me lately? You sound like an old bureau ASAC of mine. <laughs> yeah, what well, have you done for me today, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what have you done today? Okay. Yeah. Hey, no, I got to tell you, man, uh, just it, it, it's chills, it, but literally it's such a sense of history. Uh, and for me, it's impactful too, because my dad never talked about that stuff. Went to Vietnam as well. World War II, Viet never talked about that stuff. Took a hard toll on him. You know, it was a hard toll on the family. Uh, but you realize what these folks must have seen, what they had to go through. And uh, but but this is me. I mean, people can't see this, but th this is me saluting you, Vince Pankoke, or as they say in uh, German, you know, Vince Pankoke. Did I get that right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Very good. Uh, well done. Well done, sir been an honor to have you on here, Vincent. Thank you so much for to walking us through this whole story. You know what? It's an honor to be talking with both of you. Uh, and, and, you know, it's it's something whenever I'm out talking to groups that's not law enforcement. It's much better. I'm at home. I was at home um, at the IACP. I was at home here, you know, because, you, you know, you can appreciate and understand, you know, the struggles and, and what we went through. Yeah, it's part of the law enforcement culture. Once you're in, there's only one. Uh, you don't retire here. There's just one way out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like being you know, in the there, mob, right? There, there is there is one story that's in the book that I want to mention to you that my dad told me. My, you know, in my dad's later years, he he forgot a lot of things. The memory faded. One thing that never faded was them liberating this camp um, in the uh, Garmisch uh, area of Germany, southern Germany, in early May. Uh, it, it, that never failed him. But he also talked about, um, you know, you know, some of the things that he sort of regretted. And, and that's whenever he would uh, get a tear, even though it was kill or be killed. I saw I saw in different things in his personality, the war, what the war did to him. And not only that, but, you know, Murph, I'm sure the same with you, Morgan, I'm same with you. Anybody that's had a career in law enforcement. To say that these things that you dealt with and seen haven't affected you, then you're lying. 
Absolutely. Yeah. You never come out the Absolutely. same person you went in as. It, it changes you somehow. Well, by the way, we, we would be remiss. We don't want people to leave. You go to Vince's site, Vince Pancoke, P-A-N-K-O-K-E, VincePancoke.com. That's where you can get Vince to come talk to you. That's where they've got the book, The Betrayal of Anne Frank, A Cold Case Investigation. Less a mystery unsolved than a secret well-kept. And, I mean, for the effort you put into this, uh, again, I put you in the small handful of people that if I ever decided to to do something bad and go on the run, there's a handful of people, you, Bill Sarukas from the Marshals, there's some people I would not want, Julie Mackey, I would not want you on the case because there would be no place to hide. So this is us saluting you, Vince Pancoke, for a job well done, sir. Well, sure Thank appreciate you, it, Morgan and Steve. Yep. Anything I can ever do, reach out to me. Same well, here. Yeah. Jimmy Hoffa. We're going to talk about Jimmy Hoffa. So uh, okay. <laughs> you guys, you guys hold still. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. Guys, uh, again, I just get goosebumps when we talk about this stuff, that the amazing work that went into it and, and just the, the methodical process he went through. And then what I, th me kind of being a technology geek too, and I'm doing some work with Microsoft right now on our national center uh, for open and unsolved cases. Uh, it's the use of technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning to really look at all of the stuff and make the connections in seconds that might take humans years to do it. So, I mean, hats off Vince and uh, the whole gang over there for kind of, I think bringing resolution to one of the great mysteries is, is how did it happen with Anne Frank? Absolutely. It's, it, and, you know, like you said in the introduction that and when we go through high school or junior high, I think it was high school, where you've read the book, The Diary of Anne Frank. It's horrible what happened to the, to the Jewish people over there. Uh, for those of people out there that think that's a hoax, you're an idiot. So just so you know. But, yeah, uh, Vince, thank you for, for the service that you uh, gave to our country. And thanks for continuing into retirement to bring some peace to, to some of these families. Yeah, so head on over to VincePancoke.com, V-I-N-C-E-P-A-N-K-O-K-E.com. See all about the book, see all about him, and bring him in, and let's talk about that. So, thus bringeth an end again to another episode. So, head on over to Apple and Spotify, hit those five stars. Tell us what you thought about this episode. I think the betrayal of Anne Frank in the investigation, one of the most just historically amazing things uh, I've heard about. Uh, just head on over there. Tell us what you think about it. Also, head on over to GameOfCrimesPodcast.com. That's where you'll find the link to the book, also Vince's website. Uh, also, follow us on that thing they call social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes, and you'll hear Murph and I. Now that we're kind of speeding up, we've had our coffee, we won't be as tired the next time <laughs> we have an episode. <laughs> we'll be ready for you guys. Yeah, that's right. But head on over there. we got some good stuff coming out. Um, Coming out will be our Q&A for next month. We've got 911, What's Your Emergency, our Narcometer Review, and then our exclusive stuff that we do for our Warden of the Throne level. It's our highest level, so we have some special stuff coming out for those folks. But we want to thank you guys. And seriously, thank you guys for all your support. Mm -hmm. Guys, this is such an important topic. You know, Listen to this, share it with your friends, tell one, share one. And we thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the finally resolved, we believe, what happened to Am Frank, Game of Crimes. Mm -hmm.